The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he passed by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. He walked along a little further and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They too were in a boat, mending their nets. Then he called them. So they left their father Zebedee in the boat, along with the hired men, and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Today's first reading presents us with the third part of the four-part story of the prophet Jonah. Jonah is given a mission by God to go and preach his words of warning, but also words of repentance and conversion to the people of Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrians, the ancient enemy of Israel. The first part of his story is about his disobedience to God. He rejects this mission of preaching to his enemies. And he flees on a ship heading in the exact opposite direction to the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, as far away as he could go, to the end of the world as far as his people knew it. And when the ship encounters a violent storm and is on the verge of sinking, the other sailors on board realize that it's, it's Jonah's presence that is causing the storm. And at Jonah's prompting, they throw him into the sea and then the storm subsides. The second part of Jonah's story is perhaps the most memorable. Uh, when he's plunged into the sea, do you guys remember what happens? What does the Lord send? A whale. The Lord sends a whale, right? It's kind of an unusual part of, this, of his story. The Lord sends a whale that swallows him up, and it's from within the belly of the whale that Jonah offers a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for saving him. And after three days, the Lord commanded the whale to spit Jonah up on dry land. My first seminary is St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. It has a beautiful depiction of this dramatic moment in Jonah's life uh, and its connection to the life of Jesus. The seminary's main chapel has a series of stunning stained glass windows built over 100 years ago. Uh, each window depicts two scenes. At the bottom of the window is something from the life of Jesus Christ. And at the top of the window is something from the Old Testament that prefigures that bottom scene in the life of Christ. That is, the scene from the Old Testament in the top foreshadows something that will be fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. In this particular window, which is one of my 
favorites in the chapel, and I think I've probably preached about it before. The bottom scene depicts Jesus bursting out of the tomb on that Easter morning in his resurrection. And you see the risen Christ stepping forward, his leg raised up over the stone, and he's holding a flag in triumph as the, uh, you can see the soldiers that were guarding the tomb flying backwards, stunned and also physically being knocked out, uh, knocked over. The top scene depicts Jonah at the moment of his resurrection. And on the horizon, behind Jonah's shoulder, you can see, you can see a little whale in, in, the, in the stained glass window with a, you know, kind of a typical uh, water coming out of his, his uh, blowhole. And in the foreground is Jonah. Like the triumphant Jesus shown below him, Jonah has his arms raised in triumph, thanking and praising God for raising him back to life after three days of his entombment in the belly of the whale. Thus we see that Jonah is a clear prefigurement of Jesus' triumph over death and his resurrection after three days in the tomb. The third part of Jonah's story is what we heard in today's first reading. And it recounts Jonah's personal conversion and his acceptance of and obedience to the mission the Lord has given him. And we hear that Jonah's mission is a success. The people of Nineveh repent and they're spared of the destruction that God had threatened would be the consequence of their evil ways. It's the fourth part of Jonah's story. We didn't hear it today. It it's might not be as well known. Um, and it perhaps is kind of surprising given the sort of triumph we just heard in this third part and the success of his mission. But after the people of Nineveh repented and were spared destruction, Jonah, he became greatly displeased and angry. And he complained to the Lord. Rather than rejoicing at God's mercy, he left the city. He left the city and he went out, out away from the city where he could build a little hut and watch over the city. Because he wanted to see. You can see maybe he's a little bit of pouting going on here perhaps, right? He wanted to see if the Lord would destroy the city or not. In essence, he wanted to see the destruction. That's what he came for. He didn't come for conversion. He came for the destruction. One Bible footnote describes the book of Jonah as, and perhaps unfairly, says this about the book of Jonah. It's the story of a disobedient, narrow-minded prophet who is angry at the outcome of the sole message he delivers. Which all points us to an essential principle of God's calling in the life of any disciple. The person chosen is chosen not for his own sake, but for the sake of a mission. The person chosen is chosen not for his or her own sake, but for the sake of a mission. And as we see in the story of Jonah, this principle can be very difficult to accept, even for a prophet. It's difficult to accept because all of us, as humans, are subject to the effects of original sin. We all struggle with temptation towards self-centeredness, uh, selfishness, and narrow vision. Sometimes it, it appears in that, that kind of initial tinge or negative feeling or reaction that we can have in the depths of our heart or in our mind to a person that's not doing what we think they should do or a situation that's not going the way we think it should go. The desire to do 
whatever, what we want to do, the desire for things to be the way we think they should be, to be the master of our destiny and to control everything and everyone. We all struggle with that in varying degrees and different things that can affect us in this way in our lives. In the story of Jonah, we see that conversion is an iterative process. His initial reaction to God's mission is complete disobedience. He'd rather do the exact opposite of what God wants to do. And he demonstrates this by going the exact opposite way as far away as he could go. The consequence of disobeying God, it goes back to the beginning, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it's also revealed in Jonah's being plunged into the sea. The consequence of turning away from God, it's always moving towards death. Turning away from God always is, means we're going towards death. But as we also see in Jonah, and I've seen throughout the whole of salvation history, God is relentless in calling humans out of that path and trying to draw them back to him. God is relentless in calling humans out of death and into new life. He's always looking for ways to save us, individually and collectively. And he often does so in quite surprising and unexpected ways, such as through the belly of a whale. And we see the effect of salvation and resurrection on Jonah. With his new life and conversion, he's obedient to God's mission for him. Yet as part four of Jonah's story reveals, conversion is an iterative process. Outwardly, he is obedient to God's mission. He makes the long journey to Nineveh. It's a long ways away. And he completes the preaching, the task of preaching this message to the large city. But his conversion is not, it's not complete yet. It's not full yet. His desire is still for the mission to be for his own sake, rather than for him to be for the sake of the mission. He wants to see the city destroyed. That's why he went there. He wants the satisfaction of seeing his enemies destroyed. However, as we see prefigured throughout the Old Testament, and as we see fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, God wants to see something different. He wants to see all people, not destroyed, but saved. That is the mission that the prophets are sent on. Not for their own sake, their own goals, their own purposes, their own plans, not for their own merit or their own satisfaction. They're sent for the sake of the mission, which is summed up beautifully in the well-known uh, verses from the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The second reading and the gospel today both point to this same principle of mission as well as the urgency for us as, as Jesus' disciples sent into the world on a mission to, to recognize the mission and conform to it quickly and to persist and persevere in conforming to it. As St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, time is running out. Time is running out. The call is urgent. The call is now. And as we heard in Mark's account of the call of the first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, 
They all dropped their nets and followed him. They were chosen by Jesus, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the mission. That meant they had to drop what they were used to and what they were doing, their old purposes or their own focus in life. And we see that, that they agree unhesitatingly to change their whole way of life. They set out on a new road by an act that one commentator said, by an act that is a brutal, almost unthinkable rupture with their past. Such a rupture with their past. Yet as we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark, the conversion of even these first disciples would continue to be an iterative process. Breaking away from the mindset of living life for my own sake and ongoing conversion for the sake of the mission, it's a lifelong project. We're all working on it together. So how are you doing in responding to God's call in your life and conforming more and more to the mission he has given you? What are the areas that you are still perhaps clinging to life for your own sake rather than for the salvation of the world? Are there old sins and an old way of life that you're still clinging to? Keep persevering. Keep asking Jesus to conform you to his ways. Trust that he is working on you in ways you maybe don't realize and in ways that will probably surprise you. Are there people that you have resentment towards that you would like to see, just using the word we have from today's readings, that you'd like to see destroyed, frankly, that you are trying to destroy through the way you think about them or speak about them? Have you considered how you can be a part of God's mission for them by perhaps praying for them and blessing them, by refraining from gossip about them? And gossip, we're, we're reminded, is not just speaking, but it's also listening. It goes both ways. Are there areas in your life that you still want to be your way rather than accepting God's will, or praying for and practicing heroic patience in allowing God's will to unfold. This weekend we are celebrating our parish patroness, Mary Queen of Peace. As I mentioned last week, she's the true first disciple. We heard the calling of the first disciples last week and today's gospel both, but she's the true first disciple. She is the one who, through God's singular grace for her, has been spared of the effects of original sin. And she is the one who is not in need of an iterative conversion because from the moment of her immaculate conception, she has always been about not her own sake, but the sake of the mission. That's why she can rightly be called amongst many worthy titles, Queen of Peace. She's always working towards bringing peace to the world and to the lives of every human being, all of us, her beloved children. And not the peace that we think is best, but the peace that only God can give. The peace that comes from the awareness and certitude of God's presence and guidance in our lives and his always working to set us free from sin and death and offering the free gift of salvation that leads to eternal life. So let's keep praying that Mary will teach us all those virtues, these 10 virtues that we're uh, focusing on one each month this year, that she'll teach us all those virtues that she lived out so well. And in particular, we'll ask her to teach us to be a disciple like she was and she is. 
aligning our thoughts, our prayers, our words and actions to be more and more pure and to be not for our own sake, but for the sake of God's mission of saving all people.